Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 15th of February, as we record. The UK is officially in recession, or at least we learned today it had fallen into one at the end of last year. But we're ploughing on undimmed, and today we're talking about one of the country's big success stories, at least in terms of its financial performance and share price returns. That's Relics. Its latest set of full-year results are out today, so we'll discuss those. Relics has actually returned 36,000% over the past four decades, meaning it's the best of the stocks that featured in a past form in the FTSE 100 at launch in 84. Obviously, most people don't take the 40-year view when holding shares, but the topic of outsized returns is addressed by our cover story this week, which examines one of the most regular questions we get from readers, which is when to sell a position. So we'll be discussing that feature as well. Finally, we will address the topic that's making waves in the market as well as in the personal finance world at the moment. That's motor finance, the FCA's review into the market, and the resultant company-specific impact for businesses like SNU, Close Brothers, and beyond. So we will look at the repercussions from that later on in the show. Joining me to discuss all this are over the line Mark Robinson. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mark. Uh, Julian Hoffman. Uh, hi, Dan. Always a pleasure. Likewise, Julian. And in the studio, Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. Hi, Gemma. And James Norrington. Hi, everyone. We are going to begin with Relex then. As I say, full year figures out today as we record. Gemma, the company's done pretty well over the long term, as I've said. Over the short term as well, it's riding the, the you know the AI wave, the data, uh, interest in big data, that kind of thing. How do the latest figures look? Well, they're looking pretty good, actually. So organic revenue was up 8%. Um, adjusted operating profit was ahead of that at 13%. And growth was good across all its divisions. I think for context, it's useful to say that Relics is a massive company. So it's one of the 10 biggest in the FTSE 100, but it's not a household name. And I think that's partly because its results are reliably good, but they always sort of match expectations. So you always hear words such as solid and steady associated with Relics. And that's because it is just so skilled at repeatedly matching forecasts or maybe going a little bit better than people are expecting. But it's just an incredibly reliable company. Um, and this this year was no different. Yeah, I've done my usual thing of ploughing straight in without saying what the company is. So you're right. For those who don't know, this is the company that used to be, well, it used to be a number of things. It used to be Reed Group, uh, Reed Elsevier as well after that, uh, you know, publisher of magazines in the past, now very much focused on its data, its legal division uh, events as well. How how are these looking? You know, how's the relative strength in all these arms looking at the moment? Yeah, so the events arm was particularly striking because obviously it suffered during lockdown massively, so it had a big, big rebound. Um, it's still slightly under 2019 levels, but pretty much there. And then the other big divisions are, as you say, there's the risk division, which serves sort of insurance companies and helps companies prevent fraud. So growth is pretty strong there at 8%. The science and legal division was slightly, slightly slower, but as everyone expected, about sort of 4 to 5% revenue growth. So, yeah, steady is the word of the day, I think. 
and is a company, as you'd expect from a mature company, that returns cash to shareholders. Uh, dividend was up a little bit in keeping with what you've just been saying. New buyback coming as well, slightly bigger than the previous one too. Yes, so it announced a billion pound buyback, which I'm sure everyone will be pleased to hear about. So 150 million worth of shares have already been bought back, um, but it's still got plenty, plenty to go. Um, and this compares with 800 million in 2023. So it's is a bit of a step up and sort of reflects the confidence of management, I suppose. When you get a company like this, which is, you know, in its outlook statement and in its reporting, steady as she goes, fairly anodyne sometimes in its forecast for the years ahead. I guess you have to kind of pass the statement quite closely when you're looking at the results. Now, in the past, it's spoken about, you know, returns in these divisions being above historical trends or in line with trends. This time, it hasn't really referred to those, you know, former metrics. So can we take that as signs of positives, negatives? You know, how, how do we see the, the outlook statement? How can we read those runes? It's tricky because, as you say, the outlook is pretty vague. So management is predicting another strong year of underlying growth in revenue and adjusted operating profit, which admittedly could mean quite a few things. But having spoken to the company this morning, it did seem that the outlook was extremely positive. So one of the big things that Relix has been investing in is sort of more sophisticated data tools. Um, and obviously, artificial intelligence is flying around as well. And that seems to be driving the demand from these clients. So people want data that they can use and apply easily in their business context. And that seems to be something that Relix is extremely skilled at. So I was um, chatting to the CFO and he gave a couple of more concrete examples, which helps, I think. So in the legal division, one of the big issues is that so much of the data is in written form. So there's loads of court judgments or contracts, and it's using AI basically to process those documents and allow lawyers to almost have sort of a chatbot relationship with the tools. So be a, sort of have a conversation with the data. And that just struck me as quite a useful example to show what they're doing and sort of why demand for that sort of thing would be so strong. Mm. This is the so the legal side has the, the Lexis Nexus online uh, you know, compendium, if you will. They probably would object to that being quite an old-fashioned word for what they're doing because you're right that this AI side of things, as with any company vaguely related to data or technology in the past 18 months, has been seen as a big tailwind for them. Is there a sense that they are jumping on the bandwagon or conversely, is there a sense that actually some of these things are uh, a, natural uh, evolutions for them, B, maybe things they've been working on for years before anyone or at least any of us cared about uh, cared about AI. How do they sort of sit in that? Well, it was very much the sense I got from the company was that they've been doing this for years and years, basically. And they were saying, obviously, gen generative AI is exciting and it's new, but we've been dealing with these new technologies and integrating them for years. So it's not a case of, oh, my God, we now, now need to spend way more on it. You know, the spending has always been there. Um and I think what's absolutely crucial for a company like Relix is it has such massive trusted databases. So um, if you're an insurance company, you know you can rely on what you're being told. And these new ways of using the tools are obviously useful, but the core asset is basically the same. And I guess that's extremely difficult to compete with if you're a company trying to sort of break into the market. That just huge trove of, of data is invaluable, I would say. Yeah, that moat is, is pretty wide in theory, albeit if they say they've been looking at it for years, I'm sure the number of references in the statements will have oh, gone yeah. up uh, <laughs> uh, fairly considerably in the past uh, couple of years. So some of that can be taken with a pinch of salt, perhaps. Uh, there was another uh, interesting thing uh, with Relics a few months ago regarding the journals side of things. 
because you know there's a lot of data they get from the legal side. There's also a lot of data they get from these journals, you know, opening up access once people pay to all kinds of academic papers. And over the years, there have been perhaps, you know, not unreasonably complaints about the way the money is made from these journals, right, in terms of it's not the authors, the academics getting the money. It, it is relics in a lot of cases. There have been boycotts. There have been, uh, you know, negotiations going on for a long time, particularly with a set of German universities who appeared to be one of the last holdouts. But there was a deal made at the end of last year, which, which may be uh, beneficial for both sides, perhaps, or, or we'll see. It sounds like, so yeah, as you say, there basically was gridlock over how the situation progressed with these German universities. And eventually a deal has been struck and analysts seem pretty excited about it because they say even though there aren't sort of massive financial implications immediately, um, it frees up, a, well, frees up a lot of the anxiety that investors might be feeling. And going forward, the science division seems to be on much more stable footing now that this deal has been struck with the universities and there's less fear that, you know, there might be boycotts in future. And also there are these sort of inflationary linked price hikes, which seem to be good for relics in the long term and sort of drive that revenue growth. Mm. Yeah, it seemed the universities were quite happy that they had got a lower upfront price. But but yeah, those ratcheting up of those deals might be uh, ben more beneficial to relics in the end. Mark or Julian, I don't know if you have anything much to add on relics. I haven't asked you before the show, so let's see. Well, nothing uh, beyond what uh, Jeff has mentioned there, although it did sort of put me in mind a little bit about another consistent performer in uh, in Next as well, because it's got the same dynamic where it tends to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. And, you know, it's it's got a... Its heritage is very similar in that regard. I haven't had uh, a chance to look at the, the valuation uh, metric at the moment, but certainly, you would you would think, given how closely it's followed, we 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 have a, a on a, a buy at the present time. But I, I guess we'll be reviewing that, given the the share price performance over the last year. It's up by uh, well over a third already. So um, that will be something we'll be looking at uh, in due course. Well, you're putting Gemma on the spot there, Gemma. What, what's your view on the valuation? So I would say that I would view that think that AI is more of a tailwind than a headwind at this point. So it does seem, given the level of revenue growth that it's managed to achieve in 2023 and the obvious demand for these tools and the fact that everyone seems to be piling into the idea that data is increasingly valuable, that Relics still looks um, still looks a fair price. It's almost like a, a US valuation, almost like a US tech valuation in some regards because I think it's sort of averaging... Uh, the average current ratio is about uh, 25 times as well. But then again, you're looking, the, the yield or the inferred yield, uh, implied yield is about 2.3%. And if uh, they're buying back shares as well, that's going to keep people uh, interested. And plus they've got that, uh, they've got this sort of record of uh, dividend growth too. So it's, it's, it's no wonder why they are well supported in the market. I mean, it's, it's certainly an option that you can put in your portfolio and uh, it won't cause you too many sleepless nights. It's kind of the best of both worlds in some ways, I suppose. You know, it is that, that big, rare example of a UK tech or data-led stock. I suppose LSE might be another one nowadays. It can, you know, can be ranked alongside the US equivalents, but equally, as you say, it offers that yield and those distributions as well, which you don't get so much in the US, albeit we have seen some moves on those fronts in recent days. On the subject of shares that have done incredibly well, 
that leads us on nicely to our cover feature this week, which, as mentioned, is on the topic of when to sell. And this is not, I should state, the idea of when to liquidate everything, run away in fear, that kind of thing. But it is looking at both when to sell something that's gone wrong, but in particular, perhaps, what to do with the winners, the things in your portfolio that have done really well, James, that maybe you're starting to think, can this continue? How long can it go on for? Has it gone too far too fast? Can you say a bit about how you kind of approached the subject to begin with? Well, it's um, it, it's something that readers always ask us about whenever there's any sort of research. Um, Investors Chronicle. It's one of the things that people ask is, you know, when to sell. I don't know when to to sell. And and it's um, it opens the door to all sorts of sort of the psychological traps for investors. You've got loss aversion. You have anchoring this this, this idea basically loss aversion. This idea that people like winners less than they um, hate losers. So it leads people to to this trap of uh, either selling something too soon, sort of getting out and and saying, "Oh, I'll take a win here," or or sometimes hanging on to a loser, hoping it'll come back. Um, and, and so in both instances, it 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 it's bad for your portfolios. Um, selling winners. And uh, and coping hold of losers is like cutting flowers and watering the weeds. I think it's, it's the quote. Yeah, there's always things to watch out for, aren't there, and to be careful of biases, things like that. On that note, what are the the obvious, you know, behavioural things? I say obvious; they're very hard to avoid by their very nature. But what are the things to look out for on this topic? Try and catch yourself doing and trying to avoid doing. Well, I think you know, investing isn't gambling. I mean, it's not get a winner, and you know, it's not not sort of you know take your dough and leave. It's not wheel of fortune. Um, so if you've if you've got something that that's if the investment case still makes sense to you, then uh, then then you should stay put. If your investment case has been torpedoed, then then you probably need to be disciplined about getting rid of it. We, you know, when we've we've approached this topic before, I mean, there's there's three reasons, really, only three reasons why you'd sell. Which was um, which was actually covered in a feature we did nine years ago on this. Uh, Philip Ryland wrote, and it's it's sort of either if your investment thesis is plain wrong, and you've got to be honest about that, and that's about sort of some rules based investing. Um, if if some some misfortune occurs, um, you know, some complete black swan event, and you need to you just need to get out. Another one is is actually about avoiding another psychological thing, the endowment effect. Is is if there's something better to invest in. So you need to think holistically about your portfolio and your objectives. So if you've got a certain target and uh, and there's a, another company that you hold um, is is likely to achieve that with no material greater risk and and, and doesn't concentrate you into areas in your portfolio that that you don't want to be too overweight into, then um, then it might make sense to to swap out one of the underperformers for that. Or even a, an overperformer, if you know the future growth is looking more attractive elsewhere, as you say. Absolutely, yeah. You, you basically you, you need to keep constantly just have a re- reassessment of your portfolio and think, um, what are my objectives? How have they changed? You might even want, you might think, if you're getting close to retirement, I'll take a bit of risk off the table. Yeah, that might, that's another good reason to sell. And then you sit there, you, you look at your objectives again from from that starting point. You don't anchor yourself to the past. Um, you, you yank yourself to, to where you are now in the present, and then you, um, and then you, you basically you just when it comes to individual holdings, just think again. I mean, how would I make the, um, how would I make the investment case to a man from Mars? You know, you, you basically, um, you're you're sort of starting from scratch with making a good um, a case and trying to get rid of all those sort of biases you may have picked up on the way as, while you owned it. And in recent times, for listeners who have had the benefit of some big winners in their portfolios. The two obvious ones, perhaps, are in the US, inevitably, NVIDIA. In the UK, Rolls-Royce has had an incredibly good 12 months. 
but there are different ways of looking at companies. There are metrics you can use to run the rule across all companies, screening, for example, but there are uh, particular things you can look at in relation to individual companies as well. And those two companies are both mentioned in the piece specifically, I believe. Yeah, with Rolls-Royce, I was, I was thinking very much looking at the sort of the pace of earnings upgrades because you know, that, that particular company got a bit of um, a, a, a massive tailwinds, quite literally, from aviation um, uh, and, and you know, the, the, the rebound from COVID and, and engine flight time. And, and you, you've sort of got to ask, well, you know, is, is an, it does have sort of quite strong working capital commitments with, um, with its contracts. So there are reasons, you know, to, to be, you know, to think, well, can the earnings upgrade continue a pace to support that level of growth? And you think at that, well, well maybe now, in a company like this, we should go back to sort of a longer term view of, of you know what it can do. And so that's one that you might want to reweight slightly. Doesn't mean sell can necessarily. There's still plenty of decent sort of growth forecast. I mean I think think the results are out next week and if there's no disappointment it's it's one to hold, but it might be one to, to trim back into sort of a slightly different portfolio weighting, which we might talk about in a minute. But NVIDIA is a different case um because the upgrade cycle has just been so so powerful you wouldn't sell that there is that potential there is a potential you know reason to torpedo case of well, again quite literally again if if if, Thai, if china decides to barricade taiwan which which would create an enormous um, supply chain issue but i think that would probably given the prevalence of semiconductors in the global economy would sort of knacker the a lot of sectors in the stock market <laughs> you know no never mind just um just nvidia but but you know i think i think that refers to a point as well james is that you know, a company like rolls royce has that many more variables in relation to the investment case, then, then if you looked at a company like Johnson Service Group, it just supplies linen to hotel groups. There isn't a great deal uh, that can go wrong there. They're in entrenched uh, commercial position as well. But with Rolls Royce, uh, a, a part of the problem uh, with the company was this is well, you could say it's bad luck, but they had uh, they had long-standing troubles with their train engine series. Plus, there was long-standing uh, reservations over their um, uh, accounting treatments as well. That sort of undermined the share price. Uh, and then, of course, COVID came along to put the kibosh on the whole thing there for a while. But my, my general point is that some some companies have a great deal more variables than others. I mean, there is a lot can go wrong in hotel rooms. As uh, anyone who had to had to be a, um, a, a manager of Led Zeppelin in the seventies would probably be able to. <laughs> It's probably the first time anyone's ever compared uh, Rolls-Royce and Johnson Service Group, but, uh, but there we are. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, which you did allude to, I mean, there are a lot of specific metrics discussed in the piece uh, about how you can go about assessing the fortunes of companies and their future prospects. You know, it's the kind of thing we discuss every week as well in the publication. But the other aspect is it's not just about valuation, because it's also about, as you've been saying, your own personal goals. And therefore... The question of rebalancing comes to the fore quite often, doesn't it? You don't want to get a portfolio where your stocks that have done incredibly well have suddenly taken such a huge chunk of your portfolio that you're really out of kilter with your risk objectives and, and you know your tolerances. Well, you need to, to reassess your, your risk objectives um, and and sort of realign them in accordance with your views. I mean, that, that not, doesn't mean to say you shouldn't run a winner. You should actually look at ways of um, trying to incorporate different views on certain 
certain stocks. There, there may be some which have got very overweight. I mean, I think something like Rolls-Royce, you, there might be a case to, 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 to trim that a bit in a portfolio. Um, something like NVIDIA, you may want to run it a bit more. But but you, you look at the whole of the portfolio, you look at your risk-reward objectives, and you can use some various models. Um, you know, the one I, I refer to, um, which I've referred to before, is, is the Black Litterman model, which basically enables you to, to sort of to put in the forward rate of return that, that you might expect in the, the, on your own views um, and and weight accordingly and 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 check um, that against sort of weightings of, of what the market weighting is sort of the market cap weighting. I did it using a, a capital asset pricing model weightings, which is a, a separate model, but but that actually shows slightly different weightings for a few UK stocks than than the market has them in based on risk and reward expectations. But you don't have to use CAPM. You could use your own views, your own views, your own targets for total returns. Uh, and that way, um, it sort of sense checks you know, your beliefs and your risk reward objectives as well in a portfolio. Well, I think you said Rolls-Royce results next week. It's also NVIDIA results next week, which given it's up another 50% this year, quite high stakes at uh, this moment. But uh, Uh, We shall see what happens there. Obviously, everyone will be keeping a very close eye on those. That is our cover story this week, though, as I say. So if that has piqued your interest, do pick up a copy of the magazine. We're going to turn now, though, to the subject of motor finance. Uh, Close Brothers today cut its dividend on the back of this news, the news being specifically the FCA's inquiry into potentially unfair discretionary commissions on car loans in the past. Let's start with Close Brothers. We'll come to SNU as well, which is also affected. Mark, can you say a little bit about the FCA investigation, Close Brothers 2? Because this is a, a big deal in some quarters. Martin Lewis is quite, uh, you know, is well behind this issue, is talking about it being the next PPI. I mean, there's been a lot of things that have been deemed to be the next PPI over the years. But but can you say a bit about sort of Close Brothers' reaction and, and this investigation? Well, the, the fact that they've canned the dividend is is significant. Obviously, they wouldn't take any move like that lightly. And it's had a, it's had a, a colossal impact on the share price. The last time I looked, it was down by about 26% today as well, uh, which you don't see that often. And I was looking at the loan book as well. I, th- I think it's made up of about... Um, and just under two billion pounds. That was a midway through last year, and so they're they're pitching something in the way of two hundred million pounds in compensation. Although it's a little difficult to uh, to get an accurate handle on that at the moment. Prior to coming on the air here, I was looking around at what the projections are across the industry, and they and they range enormously. I mean, there is is as little as fourteen. A billion pounds up to about 16 billion pounds and to put that in some perspective the whole uh, PPI outgoings amounted to 53 billion pounds the last time I looked so it's of a, a similar order in a sense um, given that there are relatively uh, few participants in, in the market I think uh, if you have a look at Lloyd's as well that that could be uh, a bit more of a problem there because their their, their motor finance put portfolio is worth just about 16 billion too. So it's going to have a, 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 a you know a, a, an impact there. But at at this at at this stage, it's difficult to know because we we don't know the full scope or we don't know the detail behind the FCA's um, in investigation of that because there are different charging structures, different commission structures they're looking at. And, you know, whether this is sort of granular as well, if it goes down to 
individual brokers rather than the finance providers themselves. So it's um, it's going to take up the col- column inches in the coming weeks and months. That's for sure. We can say that much. Yeah. The, uh, these discretionary arrangements were banned in 2021. So it is very much looking at historic levels. I think motor finance is about about 20% of Close Brothers loan books. So it's that proportion that has caused the issue for it. Uh, Julian, I know you look at Close Brothers and you know insurers and motor finance, things like that as well. What's your take on this whole issue? Yeah, the reason that they're being hammered so badly is because they can't quantify what they owe, which is obviously not a good thing for the market when everyone hates uncertainty in that context. It's also of an order of magnitude much higher. So we mentioned um, Lloyd's most finance arm. It's only 3% of its total balance sheet, whereas motor finance to close is more like 10%. And uh, the dividend cut was significant. So uh, when you when you consider that uh, that saves £125 million worth of cash, so if they're expecting to have to pay out at least that in terms of compensation, uh, the bill could uh, could definitely be much higher. So yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a historic issue. It's one of those ones that comes up to bite, I suppose, as it were. The, the problem for Close and other companies in the sector is that they just don't have a clear view of what their liabilities are at this point. But uh, other other people have reacted differently. So um, SNU, which is a, a very specialist motor finance uh, company, which is also listed, they're not cutting their dividend, for example. So they are obviously confident or slightly more confident that um, they're not quite as entangled in these discretionary arrangements. But um, yes, it's until the FDA cl- clarifies its line, investors are left to fear the worst. So this is why um, the shares have been sold off so badly. It's, it's worth remembering as well that the banks during the PPI, uh, the whole PPI issue, they were provisioning over over several years as well. And there's every, there's every reason to think that might be the case here too. Um, rather depends how they how they go about getting in contact with people who've taken out motor finance, uh, but uh, it's going to stretch uh, it's going to stretch beyond a short term issue. I know that much. So even the head of the Prudential Regulation Authority last week said the FCA investigation could have you know significant impact on lenders. Uh, Lloyd's, as you say, is more insulated because it's a much bigger institution in general, but its shares you know have. I think they've come off about 10% as well since this investigation was announced, which was only last month it was announced. So it is still an evolving, a relative... Yeah, they're down, they're down 13% this mm. year. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're obviously, it is going to have a material impact, but um, by one order of magnitude, uh, but, but, you know, a third of the order of magnitude of, say, uh, Close Brothers, which is um, what the market's been looking at. There's also some other uh, regulatory initiatives, if we can use that word, uh, Premium finance as well, which is another 10% of Close Brothers loan book, uh, I think, and uh, asset protection insurance, which I'll be honest with you, I'm not entirely familiar with that. But, you know, clearly there are all kinds of uh, investigations by the FCA at the moment into these historic arrangements, which really add to the uncertainty. Say no more than that, I suppose. Well, uh, precisely, that's um, the uncertainty is the the problem. Uh, The the FCA, the premium um, finance investigation, uh, doesn't seem to have affected anyone too badly at the moment but it's it's a question of what that they, they just need to define the terms of reference of what they mean by that and if it's just a question of if they decide to pay monthly on a car um on a car insurance premium if they slightly overpay for the bill the bill for that won't be as huge but i mean if it's if it's commission fees which are 
maybe three percent of a total um over many years that could that bill could be enormous and and you know as mark said we're up and estimates are anywhere between eight and 23 billion so nobody really knows yet until they've until they finish that whereas um the the, the premium financing um the premium financing investigation is slightly simpler i think to um to quantify mm. yeah well i think it's fair to say that people with these kind of holdings should be poring over the balance sheets to to examine what kind of exposure there may be there that does bring us to the end of today's show, though. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But thank you very much to Mark, to Julian, to Gemma, to James, and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. We will see you next time on another Companies and Markets show. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 